Hi, I'm Logan Medish, your host of the High Caliber History Podcast. And today, it's a, a topic that's near and dear to my heart. We're going to look at the relationship between curators and collectors and how the fields are changing and how they're working together and what they need to do in order to move forward together in the best way possible. So without further ado, let's jump into the topic. All right, so what qualifies me to talk on something like this, right? People don't want to hear just uh, an, another Joe Schmo out there blabbering on about something that they really don't know. So let me give you a little bit of my background. Uh, I have a degree in historic preservation with a concentration in museum studies. Uh, I've spent my career working in museums from uh, small historic house museums to the National Park Service and the Smithsonian Institution, as well as the National Firearms Museum and the National Sporting Arms Museum. I've worked uh, in, in front of the public and behind the scenes. And when working at the National Firearms Museum and the Sporting Arms Museum, uh, I also spent five years managing approximately uh, 100 affiliated gun collector clubs and getting to know the individuals in those clubs. Personally, I belong to a number of clubs as well. Uh, the Virginia Gun Collectors, the Ohio Gun Collectors, the Grand Collectors, Winchester Collectors, Smith & Wesson Collectors, Colt Collectors, um, I'm sure I'm missing some Dallas Arms Collectors, uh, and, and a variety of others. So um, with, with that out of the way, the easiest way, I think, to begin this is to talk about a survey that I did a couple years ago and then gave a presentation on out at the Cody Firearms Museum for one of their Arsenals of History symposiums. So I collected uh, more than 350 survey responses from individuals uh, as well as institutions that included seven firearms-related museums, eight gun collector clubs, information from the US, U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, and the American Alliance of Museums. 48% um, of the individuals that responded, so almost half, were in the 25 to 44-year-old age range. Uh, and the makeup of the clubs, it was interesting to hear from them. So despite the fact that almost half of the people who responded to this survey including club members, the clubs said that, quote, the vast majority of our members are 55 to 85. Another said most of our members are 65 to 70. Another said the majority of our club is over 50. Uh, one said we desperately need younger members. And then uh, the most poignant was we lose 5% of our membership every year to death. The clubs are literally dying. So I asked, what types of firearms are these collectors interested in collecting? And I broke it down into three categories. Antique, uh, using the legal definition of 1898 and earlier. Vintage, 1898 to 1949. And then modern, 1950 to present. So individuals interested in collecting antiques made up 8% of the survey responses. Those who were interested in vintage made up 26% of the responses. And surprisingly to many, uh, the modern interests, which would be 1950 and later, made up a whopping 66% 
of all respondents. So two thirds of them. Um, to which some people might say, well, that's, that's not really collectible guns. How are you collecting modern stuff? Uh, might I remind you that the earliest AR pattern rifles are more than 50 years old and as such are now Curio and Relic CNR FFL03 type uh, eligible. So those guns are collectible and check the auction listings. They're going up in price every day. So the uh, the field of collecting is changing. We've got a lot of folks interested in the more modern stuff, but the collector organizations themselves are skewing a lot older. Now let's talk a little bit about the museums. Uh, have museums changed due to the internet? Um, yes, absolutely they've changed, and they've changed out of necessity, and that is a good thing. Uh, museums that have not adapted to the internet and the advances that the 21st century has brought with us, uh, have brought with it, are left behind. I mean, that's just, it's plain and simple. If you do not have an internet presence, you have been left behind. Uh, now, that's not to say that museums have become, uh, as, as was put uh, recently, as glorified Wikipedia pages. Uh, I, I tend to disagree with that um, because a lot of the information on Wikipedia, if you're getting into stuff that's more specialized and more specific, where's that information coming from? You know, if the page is properly cited, you go down to the bottom and you look and you see that a good bit of the information, like stuff coming out of uh, on historic firearm pages and things of that nature, some of that stuff's coming from museum publications and the curators writing things and, and things of that nature. So um, we also want to look at uh, visitor expectations in museums. They are absolutely changing. Um, in the survey that I, uh, I gave out, I asked, you know, what are people looking for in museum exhibits and what do they want to see change and what do they want to see better? A third of the people responded saying that they need more tactile interaction. Now, uh, I've had discussions on some collector forums recently uh, saying that they don't like the trend that museums have taken where things have become more interactive. Um, you know, they prefer seeing stuff. Um, I would absolutely disagree, and this survey disagrees because a third of them say that it needs to be more than just stuff in cases. Uh, and the recent renovation of the Cody Firearms Museum is a fantastic example of that. They've got a uh, ballistic forensics interactive. They've got different trigger weight interactives. They've got uh, pneumatic air pressure, um, World War II machine gun interactives and things of that nature. Um, interactives are, are key to museums going forward. Um, and then by far the most common response with 72% of people saying they, they needed this, that the exhibits need better labels, uh, and in particular with the guns. It needs to be more than just the make, model, the caliber, and the year. You know, context is absolutely key. They don't want to see just a bunch of guns slapped in a bunch of cases. That's, you know, you, you want to see that, you just type in a make and model on the internet and hit Google image search and just look at a bunch of images, right? The other big complaint, 30% of the people responded, was that modern guns are not represented in the museum. Um, again, going back to, you know, two thirds of people collecting say they were interested in collecting more modern things, right? Um, museum exhibits have to relate 
to the people who are coming through the door. Otherwise, what's the point in them coming through, right? So, uh, for example, when I was working at the National Firearms Museum, one of the most uh, commonly heard things from visitors was, why don't we have uh, an exhibit on video game guns? So, for example, stuff from Call of Duty or from Battlefield um, would be very popular with guests, um, much more popular than, say, uh, an exhibit that was entitled Child's Bedroom that depicted a, a, a 1950s bedroom uh, in, a, in a Western theme with Howdy Doody and, and uh, the Lone Ranger and stuff like that. It was pertinent, you know, 20, 30 years ago, but visitors and things have changed. Uh, you know, and again, to, to go back to talking about museums being glorified Wikipedia pages and, you know, <clears throat> anything I need I can just get from the internet, I, it's just not true. You know, nothing beats going to a physical museum. Uh, and actually seeing those objects. You know, we all watch YouTube videos of things, and yeah, it's cool, but I'm sure we've all said, man, it would be really cool to see that in person or to hold that or, you know, look at it up close and things of that nature. The other thing with nothing beating physical museums is that there's often a lot of great stuff tucked away in smaller museums. And the smaller the museum, usually the smaller the budget, which means they are much less likely to have an online presence. And so you're going to miss out on some of the cool stuff that is unfortunately languishing in these collections that in order to appreciate the items they have, you have to physically go to that museum and see it. You are not going to get it on the Internet. Now, we're talking next about changes in museum displays. And we've hinted at some of the changes uh, that could happen or needs to happen based on the survey responses. So uh, have museums changed in terms of their displays? Uh, yes and no. You know, short answer, yes with an if, long answer, no with a but. Um, I would say that on the whole, uh, museums have not changed their exhibits, their displays in the concept of what they're doing. Um, you do not see, generally speaking, museums that have entire type collections of things on display. Uh, that's just not something that's going to hold enough of a visitor interest. Now, the museum may be home to an entire type collection, uh, but the likelihood that that is all going to be on display just isn't the case. Um, have museums dumbed down to the lowest common denominator? That's another common theme I've heard from people saying that, you know, the, the museum exhibits aren't what they used to be. And, and again, I disagree. Um, you know, have museums, you know, catered to the lowest common denominator? Absolutely. And that is by design. And it's been like that for a long time. Uh, the general understanding in the museum world is that you write to kind of an eighth grade education. And there's a number of reasons for that. Um, one, the goal is to get as many people through the door of the museum as possible, right? Visitors are the lifeblood of a museum. And so you don't want them to come in and look at an exhibit label and feel as though they're being talked down to uh, or feel that the writing is at such a high level that they don't understand what is going on and what is trying to be conveyed to them. So uh, if you talk to them, you know, at kind of a, an eighth grade level, uh, everyone understands what's going on in those exhibit labels. Now, of course, 
you can't win every time, right? Uh, you can't please everyone all the time. Today is not your day. Tomorrow doesn't look good either, right? Um, there's always going to be people who are left wanting more. And that's just how it is. I mean, that's just the way it is with any museum, with any exhibit. But thankfully, there are plenty of other ways to get the more that, that you might be wanting. Um, you know, another concern was that, you know, people have said museums have gone away from, you know, specialized displays and now it's just generalized generic displays with a, a kind of 10,000 foot view of a particular topic. Um, and, and that's because in general, that's how museums are structured. You know, for example, you go to the National Museum of World War II or the National Museum of World War One. Um, or the National Museum of American History, or, or whatever it is. You know, you're not going to the National Museum of World War I guns, or the National Museum of World War II ambulances, or, or things of that nature. Uh, museum displays are not designed to be in-depth case studies of something. Um, they are not designed to be an all-encompassing authority of a specific object because it's not what they're set out to be. Uh, if you wanted to see something like that, then a museum display is, is not where you're going to get it. Now, they may have uh, smaller temporary exhibits that, you know, for example, let's say, you know, uh, we can focus on, you know, machine guns of World War II and the World War II Museum might have a couple case display dedicated to machine guns used in the conflict on all sides and have all sorts of variants there with in-depth information. But that's not going to make up the majority of the museum. It's not going to make up the majority of the exhibit space because, again, that's not how you're getting feet through the door. Another concern is that people say that the rare stuff is often secreted away in the vaults. Um, again, due to space constraints, yeah, there might be some stuff that we consider rare that's secreted away in the vaults. Um, but in my personal experience, that's simply not the case. Uh, the rare stuff is exciting, right? You know, it, it's stuff that you can't see elsewhere, uh, you know, or so let's say, you know, it, it, Annie Oakley's rifle or Blackjack Pershing's touring car, or you know, you, you name it, uh, a really rare prototype or something like that. That's a piece that, regardless of your interest level in something, um, it draws people in. That's the exciting, different stuff that people are going to want to see. So it would make no sense to secret away uh, your rare pieces or your prototype pieces or you know your one-of-a-kind stuff why would you keep that locked away? That's what's going to bring people through the door because it's something that they cannot see anywhere else, right? If they want to explore uh, and see stuff like that, they've got to come to your museum to check it out. And that brings me to my next point. Um, museums need collection plans. Uh, museums cannot and should not take everything that's offered to them. Uh, another concern that I've seen from some collectors and individuals talking about whether or not they could or should donate things to a museum uh, is that uh, I've seen some people saying, well, I've seen museums deaccession and sell stuff off, breaking the trust uh, of the people who donated the arms to them or not just firearms, any object. 
the best deaccession plan for a museum is a good accession plan for a museum. Uh, if it doesn't fit the scope of collections or if they don't have a use for it or they've already got, you know, X amount of them, then they shouldn't take it in the first place. You won't find yourself in a situation where you have to get rid of the items if you didn't take them in the first place. Now, another topic that I've heard come up uh, is uh, uh, discerning collectors are choosy about the museums they donate to and only choose institutions where they can stipulate that their collection uh, stays together and is always on display. And some examples of that would be like the, the Fuller Gun Collection uh, down at the Chickamauga Battlefield. That is very rare to see, okay? Uh, the Fuller Collection was uh, arranged in 1949, and a lot has changed in the 72 years since that happened. Um, I encourage anyone who is a prospective donor of an item to a museum to read the donation contract very thoroughly and understand what you're agreeing to. Personally, in, in my career, in all the museums I've worked in, I have never seen a museum donation contract that has a, a no sale or a no deaccession clause in it, because that's just not how it works. Uh, things change, right? You know, stuff happens and museums have limited amounts of storage space. Uh, and so they, they cannot and should not keep everything. But again, that goes back to the collecting plan. Uh, you don't have to get rid of it if you didn't take it in the first place. Now, some people might say, you know, okay, well, you know, you said this was something that hasn't happened in a long time. What about examples of, say, the Bob Peterson collection at the National Firearms Museum? He's got his own gallery full of stuff. Yep, absolutely. There is an entire gallery uh, dedicated to hundreds of pieces from Bob Peterson's collection. But it is by no means all of his collection. The pieces on display there were very carefully selected and curated, and the rest of his collection was disposed of. So it's not the entire collection. Really what it comes down to is that curators and collectors need one another. They have to work hand in hand in order for both institutions uh, and concepts to survive. In general, museums don't often have specialists. Uh, on staff. Now at certain institutions, you know, like the Smithsonian or, or bigger well-funded places, you know, you may have someone who specializes in weaponry or specializes in ceramics or domestic life or things of that nature. And of course, certainly if you're at a specialized museum, then yeah, you're going to have staff that really knows their stuff. But in general, uh, curator knowledge at the average museum is much more like a dinner plate than a bowl, right? It's, uh, it's very wide, but very shallow. Um, and it has to be because they have such a wide variety of stuff. Now, this is where the benefit of collectors comes in. Collectors are exceptionally knowledgeable about what they collect. You know, they are, are they are essentially curating their own collection, right? Uh, and they can offer up that specialized knowledge that the museum staff may not have on hand. But of course, the caveat to this is that the staff has to be receptive of bringing in the knowledge that the collectors have to offer. Uh, and on the flip side to that, collectors need to learn to not be offended by the potential lack of interest uh, that the curators may 
uh, exhibit or not exhibit towards their collection. It's just the fact of life, you know. It, it may not be that they dislike whatever it is you have an expertise in, but it's just not fitting for their museum at this point in time to dedicate the time and effort and resources to bring a knowledgeable collector in uh, and, and then take in all of that information if they're not in a position to actively and rapidly deploy that information into the, a current exhibit or a future exhibit. Uh, information's great, but information used uh, or information not used what's the point, right? So you've got all this great information about, you know, Colt 1911s. Cool. But if you're not doing an exhibit on Colt 1911s, then it's just research material and it's languishing and you've wasted both the curator and the collector's time. And that's not good. Another really big place where curators and collectors need to work together, and I think they do work together very well, uh, is that museum funds are limited. And collectors, by their very nature, generally have disposable income. Uh, and most of them have more disposable income for uh, acquisitions than any museum would. And so you often see rare items being acquired by collectors, right? Because it fills that really cool niche hole in the collection, or it's the holy grail item for their collection. Um, and then they often, sometimes, uh, offer to lend that item to a museum to put it on display. And so that's where it's really beneficial. You know, you have the collector who gets to say he owns that item and it, it fills that hole in the collection, but the museum gets to benefit from it as well because they get to put it on display uh, and more people get to see it than just the individuals in the collector's home or at the shows where they may put it on display. And the collector gets some recognition. You know, the, the exhibit label will be, you know, loaned by John Q. Public or whatever, right? So there has to be a symbiotic relationship between curators and collectors. And uh, I think we're working on it, right? Um, there's, there's room for growth and room for give and take on both sides. Now, going back to the survey that I conducted, one of the questions that I asked was, who do you see as an authority in the field of firearms and firearms knowledge? Um, and just 2% of survey respondents said that they viewed subject matter authors as an authority. Just 14% said they viewed uh, subject matter experts who are curators to be the authority in the field. Okay, so people who've written books on it, they're only trusted by 2%. And people who are managing the museum collections of that stuff, they're only seen as the authority by 14%. What makes up the other 84% of the survey response? YouTube. YouTube personalities. Of course, what first comes to mind are, are Othias at CN Arsenal and Ian at Forgotten Weapons uh, and things and individuals of that nature who have put together gigantic libraries of online content of high quality content of stuff that you're, you're not necessarily going to see uh, anywhere else. And so in, in asking who do you see as an authority, I also asked why do you see them as an authority? And uh, a couple of the responses I got back 
uh, I thought were interesting. One of them was no one is ever going to reach out to a curator for information unless it's something really obscure. And the other one, and I think this really speaks to our, our 21st century, I want it now uh, culture was it takes too long. It's so much faster to go to Google or YouTube and start digging that way. You're absolutely right. Uh, YouTube is the second largest, or maybe it is the largest, and it's probably the second largest search engine in the world, Google, of course, being the first. And so if you're looking for information on something, anything, uh, go to YouTube, right? You're going to find it there. Um, and chances are, you know, most likely you're going to find a video uh, by Forgotten Weapons or by CN Arsenal or Perhaps, uh, you know, my library is a, a lot smaller, but perhaps you might find one of my own videos uh, on the High Caliber History Channel that pertains to it. And that's great. You know, I'm, I'm glad you have found the information on the, the specific firearm that you were looking for uh, in a quick manner online. But where are those items coming from, right? Where are they being sourced for those videos? Uh, both Ian and Othias and myself, we've all made videos on firearms that are held in museum collections. And were it not for cooperative museum staff allowing us and being gracious enough to give us access to those items, we couldn't have made those videos uh, and we couldn't have brought the content forth on YouTube. And so the, the YouTube personalities, myself included, and the content creators... We owe a lot uh, to museum collections and curators who understand what we're trying to do. Because again, that's, that's a very symbiotic relationship, especially if we go back to museum budgets and constraints there that the museums may not have the money to dedicate uh, to the equipment that they need or the time that is needed to go into putting out uh, internet content. You know, it, it takes time and money to put it all together. And in museums, it oftentimes is just not there. And so if they're able to work together uh, with these content creators, then everyone benefits, right? Uh, the individual who's looking for the information gets to see that information online in the comfort of their own home. Uh, and the museum gets the benefit of being plugged in the video uh, seen by a, a wide variety of people, some uh, who may not have heard of the institution that these items are being held at, right? So uh, a rising tide raises all ships. And finally, uh, to channel Indiana Jones in his famous line where he says, it belongs in a museum. Well, does it really belong in a museum? Maybe not. Uh, in fact, I would say probably not, okay? Uh, again, this goes back to the best accession or the best deaccession plan is a good accession plan. And just because it gets offered to a museum doesn't mean they should take it. And this next point is going to be hard to hear for collectors. Your collection that you spent your lifetime putting together will never mean as much to someone else as it does to you. It is your collection that is very specially and carefully curated to your standards, right? It is your collection. And you may have some amazing pieces in that collection, but as it exists as a whole, as the, the John Doe collection of firearms, doesn't necessarily make it museum worthy. 
not as a whole, at least. Now, perhaps you were fortunate enough to acquire some very rare pieces that, you know, maybe there's only two or three in existence, or you acquired guns that were owned by historic figures, or you acquired guns that were prototypes, or, you know, you name it, stuff that you're not gonna see anywhere else. Those individual pieces are more often than not probably going to be worthy of display in a museum. But if you try to put a stipulation on it that, well, if you want X, Y, or Z really cool pieces, then you have to take my entire collection. Or if you want X, Y, and Z, you have to take the whole thing and it has to be all put on display in perpetuity. That's just not gonna happen. Uh, I mean, it does happen from time to time, um, but it really shouldn't. Uh, that is just not good museum management policy to accept a donation with such stipulations put on it because museum people are not mind readers, they're not fortune tellers, and they can't see into the future. You have no idea what the future is going to hold, and the museum may well need that space in the future. And it also sets up a dangerous precedent of, well, how come you won't accept my entire collection? You accepted so-and-so's entire collection and put it on display. That creates an awkward situation that you don't necessarily want to be in. So uh, collectors, I want to remind you, please do not be offended if you try to offer your entire collection to a museum and they turn it down. Um, it generally just does not work that way, nor should it work that way uh, by design. That's in the best interest of the museum and of the collector, because unfortunately, you know, if it's, well, you know, it's an all or nothing and you make it a museum that says, all right, well, we'll acquiesce and we'll take the entire collection because we really want, you know, these three pieces. Well, now those three pieces go on display and the rest of it ends up in storage for all eternity, or those three pieces go on display and the rest of it ends up getting deaccessioned and sold at a later date. That's extra work for everybody and it upsets the collector. So you need to have a proper mindset going into these things and understanding uh, how it works best for you and for them. Uh, so realistically, outside of you know the best handful of pieces that you have in your collection, when it comes time to dispose of a lifelong collection, Again, come to terms with the fact that your collection will never mean as much to anyone else as it does to you. And the best place for that collection when it comes time to dispose of it is back on the open market, whether that's through, uh, you know, private sales to club members or it goes uh, up for sale at a gun show or one of the many firearms auction houses. Um, that's irrelevant. You know, you choose how to dispose of your collection. But really, the best place for the vast majority of your collection is back on the open market. Um, and there are a lot of reasons to that. Um, mainly, if everything ends up in a museum, what are future people going to collect, right? There, there will be nothing to collect because it will have all been secreted away into museum storage or displays. Um, and people won't be able to collect items because there's... 70 Smith & Wesson victory models uh, all secreted away in one type collection or, you know, a, a ton of flare guns all locked away and dang it, I need this one piece for my collection. But you know what? They're all in museums throughout the country. Well, that's a bummer, right? Um, so plus, as a collector, you remember 
the fun of the hunt, right? Whether it's searching gun tables or gun shows or online auctions or gun broker, things of that nature, it's the thrill of the hunt. And that's really exciting. And that's one of the best parts of collecting. Uh, and so if everything disappears from the open market and ends up in museums, the entire concept of collecting and the community of collectors that we've all enjoyed disappears. And I think that's the last thing we want. So uh, I hope you've enjoyed this, this little foray into the world of curating and collecting and my personal thoughts on it. Um, I hope you learned something from listening to this today. Um, maybe I've upset you. And, and if I have, that's fine. Uh, and I want to hear from you. Uh, maybe you agree with me and that's fine. And, and I want to hear from you. Um, this is not a black and white issue. It is not a cut and dry issue. Um, there is a lot of gray area in this. And I, I truly do see both sides. Having worked in museums uh, and being a collector myself and working with collector clubs, I have seen firsthand the, the struggles that go on back and forth between the two. And I really do sympathize and empathize with both sides. So again, I uh, really appreciate you tuning in to this episode of the High Caliber History Podcast. Please feel free to reach out uh, to me in the comments and let me know what your thoughts are one way or the other. And if you know a collector or a curator who you think would enjoy hearing some information like this, please feel free to share it uh, with them and leave a rating and a review. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the High Caliber History Podcast. I appreciate you being here and we'll see you right back here next week for another great episode. <laughs>